0: To hear Paul tell it, David's seed was more (laughs) prolific than he knew. From him descended the multiplicity of one, wellspring of holiness, fount of grace, prince of peace, conqueror of death, blessed redeemer, he who carried a certificate of authenticity written in his blood, he whose name is Emmanuel. Who else was born of God and a virgin? Thanks to the angel, Joseph was in on the secret. Paul declared the lordship of Jesus with a casual nod to his power. Of course, one who raises the dead requires no fanfare or Hollywood treatment. Only obedience from the beloved. We who praise him for all of the above.
1: This is Romans 1 verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is the birth, how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about his mother, Mary pledged him, uh, his mother, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she found was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. the word of the lord
2: this wednesday we uh, we experience the winter solstice and we endure the longest night of the year in some christian traditions this evening is known as blue christmas or the bleak midwinter it is often the evening that christians take time to remember those who in the past year have gone on to be with the lord of course blue christmas is also an elvis staple and the bleak midwinter is a perfect song for the vocal talents of one Miss Sarah McLaughlin. But the rock and roll seasonal song and the ethereal voice of Miss Sarah and the liturgies of remembrance each remind us that for some, perhaps many, Christmas is not always merry and the holidays are not always happy. In this year, perhaps especially, there's an undercurrent of disorienting, bleak midwinter blueness. So far this shopping season, retail sales are flat or declining over last year. We're painfully on point. One pastor friend of mine told me this week she's presided over 22 funerals this year. Her sister and brothers in the Coptic church in Egypt were victims of a terrorist attack last week. Aleppo, Syria is the site of a genocide perpetrated by a dictator, aided and abetted by an autocrat. Across Europe and the United States, refugees find themselves unwanted at best. And in our beloved hometown, the only answer that seems to be proffered for the problem of chronic homelessness seems to be anything other than housing. And we just remembered the first anniversary of the pain of a horrific shooting last year in San Bernardino. It seems to be a blue, blue Christmas, a bleak midwinter indeed. How do we deal with a holiday season that proclaims peace on earth, goodwill towards all? when the stated policy of our federal government is shortly to become bomb the stuffing out of them. The early Christians had to cope with the same questions. Perhaps it's been the conceit of our American version of Christendom to believe that the church's mission of reconciliation and the church's institutions of peace building really mattered to the very rich and the very powerful in our society. It appears that the civic version of Christmas has finally and fully become a public religious narcotic to try to mask the pain of the world as it is, instead of Christmas becoming the season where Jesus' followers commit afresh to the embrace of the cross and the pain it will take to fashion with God the world as he intends it to be. It has become more important to be able to say Merry Christmas, as if that was really a thing, than to bring the peace and joy of Jesus Christ to the world. Just as the early church and the first followers of Jesus had to navigate the way of discipleship against the demands of the Roman gods of Jupiter and Mars and the political tyrannies of Caesar and Herod, so we must navigate a new way of discipleship against the demands and tyrannies of our time. It is against that backdrop our two texts this morning, Paul's greetings to the church in Rome and Matthew's story of Joseph's embrace of his son Jesus. It is these two texts that offer us some possibilities to face the days ahead. These two passages, simple in their declaration, Point us to a profound and subversive truth. Jesus Christ and no other is Lord. The prescript to the letter of the church in Rome is Paul's greeting and self introduction to a church in the imperial capital. Paul's not the founder of this church. He's seeking to build a relationship with Christians who came to faith from other sources than his evangelistic ministry and he wants to exhort them to a radical understanding of Jesus as Messiah the one who subverts Caesar Paul begins and ends this greeting with words about calling in verses 1 and 6 and 7 his calling as an apostle in verse 1 and the, Roman's church, the Roman church's dual calling uh, in verses 6 and 7 uh, as Christ followers and a call to holy living. This sense of calling from the Greek word kaletas is something deeper than what color my parachute is. It's something more than how my vocation can be explained in a TED Talk or in an Oprah segment. Paul's calling is to be an apostle, Not an office of the church, but a state of being, a set-apart one, a person dedicated to a life of announcing that Jesus is greater than Caesar. Paul understands his calling as subversive, even treasonous, to the Roman Empire. Paul also calls the Roman church to first belong to Jesus Christ and secondly to be holy, in both of these callings, the church is to be counter to the dominant culture, belonging to Jesus, not to Caesar, and living distinctly, living set apart from the dominant culture. In the calling of the church to this countercultural, subversive approach, Paul is not calling the Romans to passive quietism. Paul's calling the church in the heart of the empire to make a ruckus to be distinct, to be known as distinct. And at the center of this dual call, Paul's call to a vocation of subversion and the church's call to subversive holiness, is Paul's understanding of the gospel, the Greek word euangelion. This term gospel is actually a technical, political, and military term in the Roman world. A gospel was a sort of extended press release. Here's an announcement of Caesar's latest military triumph over the enemies of the Roman state. And there you go. Caesar's, Julius Caesar's letters from the uh, campaign in Gaul were actually called gospel in the same way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospel. Two competing points of view. Jesus is Lord, or Caesar, the great military commander, is Lord. Can't have both. The writers of the New Testament, especially Paul, subvert the meaning of gospel, changing it from a term describing a form of state propaganda and converting it into a description of the message of Jesus. God's decisive messenger, and describing his nonviolent victory over the forces of evil. Paul and the church's calling is centered in this reimagination of gospel. No longer is gospel a term for state propaganda. Gospel is now a vocation, a way of life. Grounded, Paul says, in the, in the prophets and the scriptures, verses 1 through 3 and centered in a radical understanding of Jesus the Messiah as the one who is greater than the Roman pantheon of gods or even Caesar himself. And this truth gives the church its new holy purpose. Verses 4 and 5. The second text is from Matthew's good news about Jesus, telling the story of God's victory in Christ from a different point of view than Mark, Luke, or John. John. Whereas Mark and John give almost no birth narrative. They aren't Mark and John really aren't into the Christmas spirit, they aren't into the holidays. And Luke's narrative is centered on Mary. Matthew's gospel makes Joseph a central figure. Three times in the birth narratives in Matthew: 120, 213, and 219. Joseph is the recipient of divine dreams, designating Joseph as a spiritually wise and sensitive man. But the story begins in verse 18 with, as they often do, with a surprise. Mary's pregnancy is revealed while making arrangements to be married to Joseph. That can mess up a couple of families arranging a marriage. This is a very difficult passage to unpack in terms of the narrative. The rhetoric and the construction and the theology all leave us with questions. The ancient world is replete with stories of the gods raping women and children being born of non-consensual sex. But Matthew tells this story to make the point that that's not the case here. The grammar of verses 18 and verse 20 point to a conception that lacks physicality. It's full of mystery. If you're sitting there this morning saying, I don't understand the virgin birth, hey, take a number. You're in line with 2,000 years of Christian writers. We affirm it, but we don't get it. Because it doesn't make sense to us. It's not logical to us. But the text says Mary became pregnant through the Holy Spirit, through literally the holy breath. And Luke makes it clear that Mary consented to this. And so taken alongside Mary's consent and Matthew's story, we draw the conclusions that Mary's not the victim of divine rape, that Jesus is not the product of a conventional sexual relationship, and that the Holy Spirit, literally the Holy Breath, is somehow involved in this conception. It is a mystery, but theologically it serves a larger purpose of linking Jesus to divinity without coercion, violence, and misogyny. Mary and Joseph, when presented with the opportunity to bear and raise the Messiah who would liberate the people of God, willingly offered themselves into a difficult, messy, and hard-to-explain situation. That said, the narrative reveals that Joseph is no doubt wounded initially by the news of Mary's pregnancy. He sees it initially as a betrayal of the marriage negotiations underway. Joseph could have called for Mary to be publicly punished, up to and including stoned to death. But he refrains. Even though he's about to be shamed by his society, he sees no need to shame Mary or to shame the child she carries. He makes arrangements to release Mary from any obligation to him. Verse 19, uh, the word divorce is, is a little, little bit misleading. It's sort of the end of the negotiations and between the two families, and Mary will go off and have the child somewhere else. But as Joseph is unraveling the negotiations made by his and Mary's family, he receives this first angelic dream, verse 20. He's invited in the dream to go ahead and and assume responsibility for Mary and assume paternity for her coming child because the people of God will experience liberation through this child. Matthew reaches back to Isaiah 7 as an example of what's going on here. In Isaiah 7, the people of God we're in the midst of a social and political crisis. A regional political brouhaha was boiling, and it was about to overtake events in Judea. But Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and essentially says, Ahaz, chill out. I mean, literally, the Hebrew kind of said no. (laughs) Chill out, Ahaz. This is not the crisis you think it is. And God, through the prophet invites ahaz to ask for a sign let me prove to you that this is not the crisis that you think it is and and ahaz with all of the false modesty that a king can come up with says oh no no i would i would i would never think to ask of god for a sign isaiah gives the king a sign anyway a young woman likely in the royal harem will bear a son which the king will name Emmanuel. Literally, Yahweh is with us. And before this royal son is old enough to begin his training at royal court, the crisis will be over. And in the same way, the crisis that Joseph feels in this mysterious pregnancy will fade away, and God's people, currently being ground down by Rome, will find an unexpected... Liberation. Joseph wakes up with a new perspective and a new direction. Like Mary in Luke's gospel, Joseph is now grounded in obedience to the divine event that is Jesus, God with us. Taken together, these two texts invite us to a fresh approach to our blue Christmas. Our bleak midwinter does not go away by turning to the Hallmark Channel, although that tends to happen at my house, or through extreme retail therapy. The disease of our time is overcome only through revolutionary means. Not the embrace of the politics of Jupiter, Mars, or Caesar, but an embrace of the alternative reality of Jesus. An alternative reality that takes up at least four dimensions. First of all, a new calling. The alternative that is Jesus is an alternative that calls us to grace and truth. Generally, we Western Christians tend to be good at one or the other. But grace without truth is whatever. And truth without grace is coercion. And neither grace nor truth alone is the Jesus way. Our calling is to the third way. Grace, a radical acceptance. Truth, a radical perspective. A new calling. Secondly, we're called to a new narrative. We welcome a new story into our lives. No longer bounded by the myth of redemptive violence, The birth of Jesus and the calling of the church teach us that God desires and offers reconciliation through Jesus. The Christian way is not our desperate search for for God's grudging approval, but it is God's quest ultimately in Jesus to authentically repair and heal that which we've broken. Third, it is a new promise. Instead of a religion of quietude and individual striving for perfection, the Jesus way offers us, invites us, to a different promise. The promise that God is always everywhere present with us. Evil's power is broken. The antichrists of history have been, are being, and will be defeated. I know it's not a Christmas song, but at this season, I find myself singing Martin Luther's old hymn. And I love his second verse. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. A new promise. And fourth, a new courage. We no longer need live in fear of the pantheon of false gods and strutting autocrats who think they rule the world. Like Mary and Joseph facing an unplanned and mysterious pregnancy in the days of Herod, And like Paul, changing life direction and seeking God's people in the capital of Caesar's empire, we can now live in courage to bear witness against the forces of the world as it is. We can face down expressions of contempt and hatred of the other with the love of God. We can resist violence against the marginalized with a peace beyond understanding we can tell the truth of the gospel in the face of lies, liars, and false news. Jesus gives us courage to confront those who oppose his gospel with radical, nonviolent, grace-filled, and truthful love. Living into this new calling, this new narrative, this new promise, and this new courage, make it necessary for us to ask some hard questions of ourselves and our community. So this morning, four questions for us. How willing are you to see Jesus as the alternative to the business as usual of the world as it is? What will it cost you to reimagine Jesus as subversive to the world as it is? What would be the cost to divest from living in opposition to Jesus? Living as if the world as it is offers you ultimate satisfaction. And how does envisioning the world as God intends it to be through Jesus unleash you to be a subversive alternative? And maybe, just maybe, a little less blue this season. One final quote from a former evangelical megachurch pastor. I love quoting megachurch pastors. (laughs) And according to Time Magazine, one of the most hundred, one of the hundred most influential persons in the world, Rob Bell, this quote, I would hope that wherever I go, I bring good news. That's what the word means, Right? It began with the first followers of Jesus taking a Roman military propaganda term, see, I didn't make it up, and co-opting it for their own subversive purposes, insisting that the world isn't made better through coercive military violence, but through sacrificial love. How great is that? Unfortunately, this word has been hijacked for other purposes, but no worries, we're taking it back. May this fourth Sunday in the season of Advent, this Sunday of love, be the day when we take it back, be the day when in the face of everything that causes us anxiety, fear, and worry, everything that causes us heartache and pain, the things that cannot be fixed at the doctor's office or the precinct ballot box or in the electoral college or the UN, things that cannot be fixed by wishing them away may we find in this subversive gospel of Jesus, as lived out by Joseph and proclaimed by Paul, a way forward, a way forward out of the bleak midwinter blue, a way of the cross, a way of sacrificial love, a new way, rich with calling and story, promise and courage. Thanks be to God for his word, the good, subversive news that Jesus Christ and he alone is our Lord.